Welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Exploring alternative investment opportunities available to the everyday investor. Here's your host, Ben Lakoff. Hello and welcome to the Alt Asset Allocation Podcast. Today's interview is with Brahm of Empath Ventures. The stats around the potential of psychedelic medicine are staggering. We're moving toward the legalization of psychedelics for medicinal purposes, and there are many ways to invest in this trend in both public and private markets. Brahm is a VC in the space and talks about the history of psychedelics, the types of companies operating in the space, and how to potentially get exposure to them and some of the potential pitfalls of these companies going forward. Enjoy this conversation with Brahm on all things psychedelic medicines. Brahm, welcome to the podcast. Excited to have you on today. Thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. And actually, both of us are in LA. So, you know, we got to do this next one in person. But yeah, yes. with, with, with COVID, it's always easier just to set it up and do it like this. But uh, next one, that's we'll, we'll make it happen. Hell yeah. Cool. I wanted to have you on today and talk about psychedelic medicine investing. It's a hot topic coming up more often than you'd think, at least in my circles. And I guess it probably stemmed from like me following Tim Ferriss quite a bit. He's been a big proponent investing a lot of his time and energy into it. Ended up meeting you in real life. You have a fund, you're doing a lot of investing in the space. So I thought, you'd be a perfect person to come in and kind of paint the overview of investing in psychedelic medicine. Yeah, we've got a lot to cover. It's an extremely exciting space. Let's start off just with a little background of who you are and how you got into doing what you're doing. Yeah. So let's see. My background in the psychedelic space is that I have been a consumer of psychedelics for about a decade. I had my first LSD experience not too long after college and it really felt like one of those sort of, you know, there's the life before this moment and the life after this moment kind of thing. I know that's a bit of a cliche. A lot of people that do psychedelics feel that way, but you know, I was raised in a military family, knew lots of people that had had, you know, PTSD and everything and lots of unresolved mental health issues. And the reason that I looked to psychedelics in the first place was mostly as like a tool for spiritual exploration, but I quickly sort of realized the kind of mental health potential that psychedelics had after experiencing them for the first time. And I continued using psychedelics mostly in like a macro dose way, not in a micro dose way, a couple of times a year for the past decade as sort of part of my mental hygiene arsenal, I guess you could say. Professionally, I worked as a quantitative researcher and a portfolio manager at a couple of different hedge funds. Like you, Ben, CFA charter holder, you know, went through that exercise in masochism and got the three letters and, you know, have, have an academic background in computer science and machine learning. So I was doing a lot of like quantitative work at a fund called Crable here in LA that manages about $9 billion. And, you know, I, it was interesting. I was making good money, but I wasn't really feeling like I was making a big impact on the world. I felt like if I left my job at that hedge fund or really just left the hedge fund space in general, there would be plenty of people that would be willing to do the exact same thing that I was doing. There wasn't anything unique about what I was doing. And it was really just, you know, making rich people richer, trading derivatives on derivatives on derivatives of things. And I kind of had this unease that had been sitting with me about it for a couple of years. And it really sort of came to a head during COVID. And so in 2020, I decided to leave my job at that hedge fund and also decided to like not look for another job in the hedge fund space. I didn't really have a plan besides that, but I decided that I was going to do that. And for those that have followed the psychedelic space, you'll know that 2020 also happened to be the year that there was an IPO of a company 
that was related to psychedelics. It was the first like publicly traded psychedelics company ever. And shortly after that first one IPO, there were a few others. And for someone like me who had been doing psychedelics for like a decade and was also in finance, I remember seeing these news articles about IPOs of companies doing psychedelics. And I was like, there's no way this is real. Like, what is this? This is crazy. Because I, despite being someone who was very interested in psychedelics, I never really thought there was going to be an industry or a legitimate route to access these things. I would have assumed it was going to stay underground forever. So I saw that all of these companies were starting to raise capital and start running clinical trials on psychedelics. And I had a lot of free time because I had left my job. And so I just started digging into this like full force. And I started a podcast where I interviewed a lot of the founders and CEOs in the psychedelic space. And I was just running this podcast for fun, you know, trying to find like what was real, what was legit, what was bullshit in the psychedelics industry. Started getting a lot of followers on the internet. And I started getting emails from people that had listened to my podcast that were like, hey, you know, I've got a hundred grand. I want to invest in psychedelics. What do you think I should do with it? And I also had a lot of companies reach out to me and ask if I could use my platform to promote their company or help them raise money. And I realized that without intending to, I had built a stream of potential investors and also potential investment opportunities. So in order to kind of capitalize on that after talking to you know some of my friends that worked in venture capital and realizing that most of the opportunities were on the venture side not the public market side i decided to sort of leverage my finance background plus my newfound as silly as it is to say like psychedelic business influencer internet guy personality that i had like created and turn it into a fund and so fast forward to september 2021 set up the structure for a fund. The fund is called Empath Ventures and it focuses exclusively on early stage psychedelic medicine startups. I have invested in 10 companies so far. I'm still in the process of raising money. So the fund is still open. And yeah, I'd be more than happy to talk about like the specific types of companies that we're investing in and the way that I see the landscape. But that's sort of my personal psychedelics background plus sort of the professional route that got me to where I am now. Awesome. Good for you. Like doing a little bit of deep reflection and actually being intentional about a pause in your career and kind of like, Hey, you know, I don't know what is next, but I know that this wasn't the path for me. And I'm going to give myself the the space to figure those things out. There's a lot of people it's... that just head down and, you know, bash their head up against the wall through their entire life without taking that pause. Yeah. And I, I, fortunately I was lucky enough to have had a good job, which allowed me to save money so that I could actually take a break, you know, but I was a big part of it was I was coming up on my 30th birthday and, you know, I was thinking like, what is the next decade going to look like? And I was like, do I want to bring this thing that I'm not feeling good about into the next decade? And I was like, there may or may not have been psychedelic trips involved in that decision. Yeah. So that's part <laughs> of waking up. Right. I had a very transformational time period as well, right around that 30th birthday. And I think it's like a time of reflecting of like where I'm going, it's pretty easy to know the future of where you're going professionally. You just kind of look at the colleagues around and that's probably what your life will look like if you don't make a drastic change. So, And yeah. it's tough because sometimes the lives of your colleagues around you are not necessarily bad lives. Like no, they're making no. good money. They're they've great. got a sweet house. Yeah. They have like security and it's and it's like actually tough to make the decision to like uncouple from that security. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joseph Campbell, the secure ways, the insecure way. Right. <laughs> I, I, I want to talk about the landscape. I, I think perhaps a, a helpful first way of going path would be talking about this IPO for a, mm. a, a now public traded, publicly traded company dealing with psychedelics. Do we have any precedent for how this would work with cannabis companies before it was legal? I mean, th this whole like federally yeah. illegal state legal 
that cannabis has and then psychedelics is further in this gray area. How does all of that work from like a regulation standpoint? Okay, there are many answers to all the different questions that were buried under that. But I think a good place to start would be maybe just an overview of, like you said, the regulatory landscape. So first of all, no matter what the guy selling you the chocolate bar in Venice says, psychedelics are illegal, even in LA, even though people want to pretend that they're not. There is not a single jurisdiction at the moment where it is legal to produce and sell any form of psychedelic. And that would include psilocybin, the active ingredient in mushrooms, that would include LSD, that would include MDMA. The one exception to this is ketamine, which the purists would say is not a psychedelic, but it is similar in many ways. Ketamine, because it is a FDA approved anesthetic that is used in humans all the time in medical contexts, doctors are able to prescribe it off label for mental health treatment. So ketamine is kind of the one thing that we have that doctors can actually give you legally, but none of that other stuff, even in the cities where it's been decriminalized, it is not legal to produce, sell, or purchase, right? It's just that possession has been decriminalized. So what the industry is doing in general, when you hear about like a publicly traded company that is working on psychedelics, what that means is that they're a publicly traded company that is very similar to a biotech drug development pharma company that is taking some psychedelic, whether it's an existing one or whether they're trying to engineer a new novel psychedelic, and they are running clinical trials on it, just like you would run clinical trials on any other pharmaceutical drug, hoping that it will be approved by the FDA as a medication. And they are doing this with DEA permission. And so it is you know, fully legal to invest in a company that is doing the research with the goal that when the research gets approved by the FDA, it will be something that doctors can prescribe and they can make money selling. So that's sort of like the first big category. Then of course, there are these questions around state by state level changes. So many people may be familiar with the fact that in 2020, Oregon passed a law called Measure 109. And Measure 109 basically said that starting in 2023, therapists, and they're using the term therapist very loosely. It's not like the real like legal definition of therapist, but therapists, care providers, et cetera, will be able to use psilocybin mushrooms as part of therapeutic practices in the state of Oregon regardless of what the FDA has to say about psilocybin. So they're kind of going around the FDA and creating the sort of medical path for psilocybin therapy. And it sort of remains to be seen what sort of issues that will bring up in terms of investing. So many people are familiar with the fact that cannabis companies have a notoriously difficult time getting banking services because they're dealing with a substance that's federally illegal. When you're talking about a state like Oregon that is kind of just saying, you know, we don't give a fuck what the FDA says, we're going to allow people to use mushrooms as part of therapy. Presumably those mushrooms are going to be produced and sold by companies that are, you know, operating illegally in terms of as far as federal law is concerned. So they may have issues with banking services, but when you're talking about these publicly traded companies, I mean, the NASDAQ is allowing them to list, which it doesn't allow cannabis companies to list. And that's because they are basically pharmaceutical companies that are operating fully within the realm of the law. So that is sort of an overview of like the regulatory landscape. In terms of the different types of businesses within the space, I sort of mentioned already that there are these biotech companies that are trying to get psychedelics approved by the FDA. There are also drug discovery companies that are trying to 
engineer new psychedelics, to actually invent new things rather than just take existing things and try and get them approved. And if you think that sounds crazy, by the way, keep in mind that many of the most popular psychedelic drugs of all time, LSD, ketamine, MDMA, were invented by humans. There's no naturally occurring version of LSD. And they were invented by humans before we had computers, before we had the modern understanding of neuroscience that we have today. Their basic, LSD was invented in 1938. This is like Ford Model T era stuff. And there are companies out there that are basically like, we're going to invent the, you know, the test Model S of psychedelics and like get rid of this old like Ford Model T of psychedelics. And then sort of the final category is sort of the infrastructure and accessories. So this could be software to help manage a psychedelic clinic. This could be a psychedelic clinic itself. Um, this could be a telehealth app that provides ketamine. You know, I've invested in a few of those, but basically anything that maybe doesn't touch the drug itself, but is an accessory to the use. So that, that's sort of my broad overview of the business landscape. That's super, super helpful. And actually, I mean, we could talk about the history and the importance of psychedelics, but instead of, I mean, that's a whole conversation, if not, yeah. you know, an entire book. So it, to, to keep us like on topic with specifically investing, how would you recommend, well, before going into that, how, how would you recommend people that are interested in learning more about the history of psychedelics or, or why they could be super important in addition to like just investing? Like Michael yeah. Pollan's How to Change Your Mind book <laughs> comes to mind. That That's like for yeah. me, a very like outside person. That That is, it's like 50% of all people that I meet that have gotten into psychedelics in the, the past five years have gotten into it because of that book. So I was, and I actually haven't read it, so I don't know, but just based on the amount of people that love it, I would say that's probably a good place to start. One thing that is important to emphasize here, and I kind of feel silly for not mentioning this before, is that the problem that these psychedelic companies are trying to solve in general is usually some sort of mental health issue. So when I say these companies are running clinical trials of psychedelics, usually it's clinical trials of psychedelics in conjunction with therapy to treat some sort of mental health issue, whether that be depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, et cetera. There are some other use cases that you know fall outside of that mental health arena, but the vast majority of psychedelic companies are working on mental health issues. And as I kind of jokingly like to say, the uh, statistics around mental health are very depressing and they keep getting worse, especially through COVID. So just some quick numbers. 50% uh, of people at some point in their life will be diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue at some point in your life. 20% of people are currently diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue. And about 17% of people are currently taking some sort of medication for a mental health issue, whether that be an antidepressant or something like Xanax for anxiety. And it would be one thing if those treatments worked and they do sometimes to some extent and for some people, but a lot of them, even when they work, have negative side effects, SSRIs and antidepressants are famous for causing sexual dysfunction in men and weight gain, which, you know, at least for me would make me more depressed. Anti-anxiety drugs like Xanax have a high potential for abuse. People like start doing Xanax recreationally and can OD on it. And in just in terms of raw effectiveness, they oftentimes are not super effective. So antidepressants for about one third of people that try them have like no response and end up being what they call treatment resistant and psychedelics seem to offer a better way to treat those mental health conditions with fewer side effects. And oftentimes in a sort of curative way where you're like fixing the root cause rather than a palliative way, meaning like a daily pill to kind of keep the symptoms under control. So these clinical trials are often designed around two, maybe three large doses of psilocybin or something in conjunction with therapy. And we see these symptoms of depression disappear for like 12 months after the last dose of psilocybin, which is very different than, you know, taking an SSRI every day for, you know, who knows how long. 
God. So and that's kind the, of the, those numbers are, are, are shockingly high. Oh. And I, I just did like some quick Googling, but like one, those numbers are just in the U S correct. Or is that kind of uh, those, those are specific to the U S but they're approximately the same kind of, no matter where um, you look, most developed countries, yeah. I would imagine, yeah. but it, the U S alone spends close to $250 billion on treating depression and anxiety. Yep. <laughs> Holy and you know, moly. one other number that's pretty crazy is this is this one I always think about. It's this term that the CDC has called deaths of despair. And it includes things like suicide, intentional overdoses, accidental overdoses, deaths from things like cirrhosis of the liver associated with, you know, alcohol consumption and things like that. Basically deaths that happen when your life isn't going so great, right? The number of deaths of despair has doubled over the past 20 years, which is really crazy in the U S specifically. Um, you know, most of those deaths of despair are linked heavily to some sort of underlying, you know, mental health issue. He's just staggering. Psychedelic medicines show promise in treating a lot of these that are very difficult treatment resistant sort of conditions. But like, I would think that the existing drug companies that, that, are, are making a lot of money from, you know, the, the, the daily pill that's maybe not that effective, really, really don't want psychedelics to come to, to work if they work that well. I guess uh, psychedelics, like you said, LSD was found in the 30s, but I know that there were tons of like clinical tri trials in the 50s. What, what happened? Why did, mm. did it just kind of stop for a 30, 40 year period, or it kind of went yeah. more underground. What, what happened there? I'll answer that, but I want to go back to the thing you said about the existing drug companies, not wanting to bring psychedelics to the market. I think that that's true in a sense, but I don't know. I don't know that that captures the whole picture. And I think it's kind of a common misconception that like big pharma is anti-psychedelic medicine. One of the truths is that a lot of the classic psychedelic or like SSRIs and antidepressants like Prozac, they have been around for longer than their patent exclusivity period. So when you invent a new drug and you get it approved by the FDA, you basically have a 20 year period of exclusivity before generic companies are allowed to compete with it. A lot of the SSRIs that are popular now have passed that 20 year line and can be offered as a generic, which means that the companies that invented them are not really making that much money off of them. And they are actually like pretty hungry for new psychiatric medications. And if they can, you know, get patents on psychedelics or invent new psychedelics, they could potentially make a ton of money off of those. Another thing to note is that, you know, psychedelics plus therapy is going to be an expensive thing. But if it is shown to actually be more effective than traditional mental health drugs, I think insurance companies will cover it and insurance companies will oftentimes pay lots and lots of money for certain treatments. So I think that there is an appetite from big pharma for this stuff. And as a lot of these clinical trials approach phase two, it wouldn't surprise me if we start seeing some acquisitions of these small psychedelic startups by big pharma companies. So there's, that's my answer on that. But to answer your question about this sort of like psychedelic dark age, it's interesting. You pointed out that there were a ton of clinical trials on LSD specifically back in the fifties. And this is something that a lot of people don't know. So a lot of people think that like psychedelic, that LSD somehow just spontaneously came out of like Timothy Leary and the hippie movement. But it was actually around for a lot longer before that. It was invented in 1938 by this guy, Albert Hoffman in Switzerland. And he was working for a pharmaceutical company called Sandoz. He invented it accidentally. He wasn't trying to create a hallucinogen. 
and he accidentally consumed it and he was like this is nuts i can't like what is this and he started sending it around to psychiatrists and psychologists and they started using it in clinical practice and i believe this i might be wrong about this but i think in the 1950s specifically there were over a thousand uh like clinical papers written on the use of lsd as a tool for psychotherapy the i is it bill wilson one of the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous was convinced that LSD was the key to getting people off of alcohol. And all this stuff happened before the hippie movement in the 60s. In the early 60s, LSD was being um, experimented with at universities like Stanford and Harvard on students. And a lot of the students were like, man, this stuff is really cool. We should maybe just like use it outside of the context of studies. And it started exploding in popularity as more of a recreational or thing to take at a festival. And then there were a couple, there were a lot of things happening in the 60s. One, the Vietnam War was happening, and there were a lot of troops that were coming home from Vietnam that were hooked on painkillers because they had been like blown up by landmines and had been shot. And, you know, there were, there were all these like veterans that were basically, you know, junkies that were you know, shooting heroin because they had like this crazy chronic pain. It was a bad look to have this war that was already unpopular to begin with creating, you know, this homeless population of people that were, you know, using drugs. And then you had this psychedelic fueled anti-war fervor that was, you know, sort of manifesting all these big cultural events like Woodstock and everything. And so Richard Nixon basically created the DEA. The DEA didn't even exist before this and declared that there was a war on drugs and basically lumping all drugs into the same category. And it's very interesting. You can actually go back to the Senate hearings when they were passing these laws. And there were some senators that you can actually hear audio recordings of them saying, I agree with this war on drugs, but I think we should exclude psychedelics because like a lot of us know that psychedelics are very helpful for all sorts of things, but they were kind of ignored. And at that point, it became illegal to possess psychedelics. You probably could have still studied them if you had gotten the proper authorizations, but because there was such a cultural stigma around it, it would have been career suicide for any serious academic to do this sort of thing. So it basically went into a dark age and people just stopped studying it, stopped using it in clinical contexts. And then I believe in 1986, which is a year after MDMA was made illegal, Richard, sorry, Rick Doblin, I almost said Richard Dawkins, Rick Doblin started MAPS, which is one of the leading psychedelic nonprofits kind of in response to MDMA being made illegal and slowly but surely started repopularizing academic research in psychedelics and that really kind of led to where we are today, I think. That's wild. That's wild. And then the rebirth in 2020 was driven by this IPO, but like people have been investing yeah. in the space and kind of laying down the grain groundworks, obviously for these things to be happening. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, the IPO caught a lot of retail investors attention, right. And retail investors don't care about the private markets because they can't participate in it. So it's like until you have an IPO, a lot of the stuff stays underground. But I think there were a few things that happened. So MAPS was running as a nonprofit, running clinical trials on MDMA to treat post-traumatic stress disorder. And the FDA granted one of those trials, something called breakthrough therapy designation, which is kind of like a fast track designation that the FDA can give out to clinical trials that it thinks are doing a exponentially better job of solving a problem than the current best practices. So they did that. That was very newsworthy. And then some big investors, including Peter Thiel, funded a few pharma startups that were working on psilocybin that also got breakthrough therapy designation. 
I think they started those companies around 2017, 2018. And that's when like real private investment started coming into the scene. Prior to that, there were nonprofits like MAPS, but you know, it's hard to raise money as a nonprofit and drug development costs a ton of money. So once I think these big investors started pouring money in, you know, people's attention was captured and yeah, the whole thing has just kind of snowballed. I have yeah. a chart of the private in my pitch deck. There's a chart of like the dollars of private investment going into psychedelics year over year. And I think in 2017, it was like $10 million. And in 2021, it was $595 million. That's insane. It was invested by private investors into psychedelics. So the chart just grows like, you know, exponential. Well, um, like many, many startup <laughs> categories, right? As like uh, mm-hmm. the abundance of money and speculation kind of chases a lot of these, but it has very good long-term benefits to society kind of having an influx of speculative capital rushing into these spaces. You would hope, right? I mean, there's always just like crypto and other things, there's always a little bit of hype that is probably, you know, excessive and crypt psychedelics have already had sort of their first hype cycle. I think in November of 2021, the psychedelic stock index kind of like hit its peak and things have been kind of seriously tapering off since then, only exacerbated by the global financial meltdown that we're currently in. But the underlying technology of psychedelic medicine is strong and doesn't change depending on the markets. Yeah. But I would say that overall, this whole thing is still very much in its infancy. As much growth as has happened, the total sort of market cap of the psychedelics industry is maybe around 20 to 30 billion. And you compare that to something like crypto, which, you know, is like in the trillions, right? Yeah. So, well, long just at go. 1 trillion now, it was, at, it was well over. Trillion, and yeah. then, you know, it goes down by 80%. That, that right. takes a, a haircut. But no, November of 2021 was kind of like peak for all risk assets. I would imagine they all kind of pulled down based off of like the public end at indices. But like with you, you're seeing a lot of private market deals. So have you yeah. seen private market valuations coming back down to like reality in these past six, seven months, or are they still a little overvalued? No, I've definitely seen private market valuations decrease. There was a company that we just invested in and I first saw their, you know, investment opportunity probably like in February or so. And they were raising on a convertible note and the cap was just astronomical, even though like their team was super solid and what they were working on was very reasonable. The, The cap on their note was absurd. And they recently came back and they said, you know, we're actually raising with a cap that's half of what we initially, uh, you know, yeah. were looking for. I was like, okay. Well, now, I mean, now this is the reality that, that yeah. founders are going to have to start realizing, right? And, and this is, I've seen this happen in other cases that one of, you know, one of my portfolio companies, you know, they were looking to raise sort of like a priced series A. And then they're like, you know, maybe we'll actually just do sort of like a bridge round on like a convertible debt instead. And, you know, I think that that is happening all over the place. Yeah. Even to good companies, unfortunately, right? The three categories of companies that you mentioned earlier, biotech, drug, drug tech, and infra, are, are those kind of, those are the three? Yeah, I would maybe refine it a little bit and say the first one is the people that are trying to get the existing psychedelics approved as gotcha. pharmaceuticals. The next category is sort of the people that are trying to invent new drugs. That's sort of like a very different business. Um And then there's the infrastructure and accessories, which is the third category. And then, you know, down the road, there will be a fourth category called, you know, recreation, which already exists, but is not something that you can legally invest in. (laughs) Gotcha. So recreation would be like the 
the weed shop that's just like you know b21 and you can order whatever you want sort of thing right right yeah consumer brands and of course this is going to require some sort of you know changes to laws for this to happen legally but i mean it's only a matter of time before like you know gwyneth paltrow has her own line of mushrooms and like that sort of thing right it's going to happen at some point <laughs> and i mean it will right well like i'm i'm a big fan of portugal for a number of reasons but they decriminalize the personal use and possession of illegal all drugs in 2001 2001 so for 21 years they've been they've been operating like this so pretty pretty good foresight there but so I, I when when investing about these like four categories which one of which is a non category yet but how do you how do you split your allocation across these three categories now or how do you yeah. how do you think about kind of allocating here so i am very much interested in having sort of balanced exposure um the idea of inventing new psychedelic molecules is very interesting to me for a lot of different reasons. One, I think that it is maybe more ethical to do that than to try and get FDA approval for an existing molecule. Part of the reason for this is that if you spend a ton of money trying to get something like psilocybin approved by the FDA, well, now you have your special FDA approved version of psilocybin. And if decriminalization happens or god forbid recreational legalization you're gonna to have to compete with people selling for much lower prices with you than you because they didn't have to spend all this money to get fda approval so we and we've actually seen by the way some companies that are trying to get psychedelics like lsd approved by the fda speak out against recreational legalization or decriminalization saying that it's dangerous and that it's bad and that we don't support that which i think is kind of messed up it's much more ethically cleaner to invent a new molecule and then worry about selling that and not competing with you know things like psilocybin and lsd you also get patent protection when you invent something new you get 20 years of exclusivity so there's a lot more like upside in terms of you know how long you have the exclusive rights to sell the thing for the downside, of course, is that inventing a new drug is like really, really hard and the risk of failure is very, very high. But if you do succeed, you, you know, can make an asinine amount of money. And there are actual reasons for inventing new psychedelic molecules that do benefit patients. Like, you know, there are certain populations for which classic psychedelics are not very good. Like classic psychedelics are relatively safe, but they do cause your blood pressure to rise and they cause your heart to beat faster. And for this reason, the FDA excludes people that have like pre-existing heart conditions from clinical trials of psychedelics. And funny enough, most people with pre-existing heart conditions are older and older people suffer from mental health issues at much higher rates than younger people do. So this is like a core audience that actually needs this stuff more than anyone that's being excluded. So maybe you can invent a psychedelic that's like easier on the heart, easier on the blood pressure, maybe doesn't have as much hallucinogenic activity, maybe gives you the psychedelic therapeutic benefit without actually having the strong hallucinations that psilocybin has. There are all sorts of interesting reasons why you might want to create a new psychedelic molecule. But as I said, those companies are super high risk of failure and the payoffs are like many years down the road. So very much invested in those, but also very much invested in the infrastructure and accessories, which can make money much more quickly than a lot of these like novel drug development companies can. In many cases, these infrastructure and accessories companies are already making money legally. One of the companies I invested in is called New Life and it's a telehealth platform. So you just download the app and you talk to a doctor on there and they can prescribe you ketamine off-label for depression, anxiety, whatever. They then mail the ketamine to your house fully legally. 
you get the ketamine shows up in your mailbox. You do the ketamine, the comfort of your own home, and then you do the follow of therapy and integration care over the telehealth app again. And that's a company that is, you know, they launched in September of last year and are making, you know, significant amounts of money. They've facilitated 35,000 ketamine experiences to date and, you know, average price of between two to $400 per ketamine session. So, you know, you do the math, not, not insignificant. We've also invested in like some software companies that do music for psychedelic therapy. We invested in a company that is operating out of Mexico. They're a high-end retreat center that specializes in giving people that are struggling with opiate addiction, Ibogaine, which is, I don't know if you know anything about Ibogaine. Have you heard of it? I've heard of it. I've heard of it. Yeah. So for, for those who don't know, it's Ibogaine is this crazy psychedelic drug that is naturally occurring. It comes from the aboga tree, which is native to Africa. And it's a very intense trip. It feels like a combination of psilocybin, ketamine, salvia, and cocaine. It's like this crazy multi-receptor drug. And it has this very interesting side effect of interrupting opiate withdrawal symptoms. So if you're addicted to heroin or something, and you are trying to get off and you do Ibogaine, it seems to totally eliminate the cravings that you have to go and do heroin again. There's tons of anecdotal evidence of this stuff being an effective tool for you know, rehabilitation. And it turns out that it's unscheduled in Mexico, so you can legally give it to patients. So invested in a company that's basically a Ibogaine assisted rehab facility down there in Mexico, all those different things sort of fall into that infrastructure and accessories category. So in the long run, I think the portfolio will be split kind of 50-50 drug discovery and then infrastructure and accessories. And, and then staying away from like the working to get the existing psychedelics approved, right? In general, I mean, so we did invest in MAPS. The MAPS is the nonprofit that's running MDMA for post-traumatic stress disorder. They started a public benefit corporation and we invested in that. But in general... I think the challenge with the companies that are getting the existing stuff approved is that one, they don't have much intellectual property because they didn't invent the molecule. So they have to do all these other weird things and play all these weird games with patenting like weird little like crystalline structures that happen to show up in the molecule when they make it in a certain way. It's a whole thing that I could get into, but it's in not general, very defensible yeah, in it's general. like, it, it's yeah. maybe not very defensible. It's also possibly unethical. And a lot of these companies are very much threatened by the prospect of decriminalization or recreational legalization, which is what I personally would like to see in the long run. So I think it's just like ethically cleaner to stay away from those in general. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, is by, by investing in this space, well, your, your thought is that they will be decriminalized at some point and then they will be recreational at some point. Yeah. And what yeah, kind so of I mean, timeline... In, in, do, do you think for something like that? So Oregon, I talked about the, the Oregon Measure 109, which is like a therapy law. They also passed Oregon Measure 110, which basically does what Portugal did. Like it decriminalizes all drugs. So in the state of Oregon, starting in 2023, like they're going to be decriminalized already. They're already psilocybin mushrooms specifically are decriminalized in several cities around the US, Oakland, California being one, I think Santa Cruz, I believe Denver, Colorado. So decriminalization is happening already. And like assuming there isn't some massive screw up or some crazy adverse event that happens, I don't see why that would that trend would reverse. Now the gap between decriminalization and recreational legalization is like another question entirely. But you just look at like 
how long it took California to go from medicalization, which I think was in 1990 of cannabis to recreational legalization, which was what, 2018, it took like 18, it took like 28 years for California to go from like medical to recreational. And now we see states like, you know, kind of the holdout states in the Midwest, they, they go medical. And then like three years later, they do recreational. It's like the time is, you know, shrinking down because once people start consuming this stuff medically, they realize like, I could just do this. There's no reason why I need to like do this through a doctor. It's like the same thing, you know? So I, I think it might happen faster than a lot of people think. Yeah. That's, that's just absolutely crazy. I didn't realize it was that big of a lag for California. I mean, I knew it, it was like medically available for a long period of time, but 28 years is a very yeah. long period of time. I should double check. I know, I know it was 2018 is when it became recreationally available. Let's see, California medical marijuana. I'm pretty sure it was like quite a long time, but yeah, I feel like it was sometime in the early nineties when they passed that medical. Well, a, a long period of yeah. time. And that time, it was a long, it was a time long is getting time. shorter and shorter, which is the yeah. key part. I, I So with these, like, I'm just thinking from the individual investor, like the average investor, it's okay. This thing, it's going to be a thing. I get it. These publicly traded companies that are yeah down significantly since November 2021. But what what areas of focus are they? Are these all like drug tech where they're inventing their own versions or or something different? The publicly traded companies span the the full spectrum. So some of the most well-known publicly traded companies and the highest by market cap publicly traded companies are Atai Life Sciences and Compass Pathways both of which were funded by Peter Thiel and Christian Angermeyer, who is sort of the German version of Peter Thiel, much more heavily involved in crypto. I think a lot of the crypto people know that name. They So Compass Pathways specifically is trying to get psilocybin approved by the FDA as a treatment or a therapy for depression. And Atai Life Science is a sort of a portfolio company that has like seven or eight different programs. Most of them are involved in creating novel drugs. Both of those companies will likely do well financially, although many people have some like ethical concerns about them. I think they probably are reasonable buys. I think that Compass Pathways will probably succeed at getting their psilocybin program approved by the FDA. And then there are other companies out there like Field Trip Health, which is a network of 20, I think, ketamine clinics all across the U.S., they also have a clinic in Amsterdam where they do psilocybin therapy because it's legal there. And yeah, you can find lots of other types of public companies that are doing different things. But you know, the, the, the honest truth is, is that a lot of these companies that IPO'd very quickly in the period of time from 2020 to 2021, a lot of them were pretty low quality. A lot of them were kind of, you know, like the psychedelic version of shit coins. And there were a lot of rug pulls and lots of people just really riding the hype train, people that didn't really care about psychedelics in any like meaningful personal way that just wanted to use that word to, to raise some money and pay themselves, you know, a big salary. So a lot of, I think the real opportunities are on the private market side. And, you know, that's why I started Empath Ventures to take advantage of those. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it certainly was a buzzword, right? Ride that train, which, which, you know, it happens in terms of like, regulatory risk like we talked quite a bit about drug tech with the specifics like it's it's very difficult time and money but mm. um what sort of like regulatory risks do you see overall to all of these yeah just yeah. generally well so you regulatory 
specifically would be like the FDA refusing to approve a clinical trial. And that certainly could happen. And it certainly will happen for some of the clinical trials. But the nice thing about this whole universe of psychedelic clinical trials is that one, we're not just looking at a single drug. We are looking at like this whole universe of different psychedelic drugs, including the whole universe of yet to be discovered psychedelic drugs. And we're looking at applying them across all sorts of different mental health issues. So trial, one drug might fail for depression, but succeed for anxiety, for example. So I think that there will be a number of psychedelics that do get approved by the FDA as treatments. And then in terms of more complicated regulatory matters, this is the stuff that shows up when you start looking at investing in businesses that are operating, let's say legally under Oregon law, but illegally as it relates to federal law. So far, I have yet to invest in any companies that are breaking federal law. And until someone gives me a good reason not to, that's probably what I'm going to keep doing. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating space. Brom, really appreciate you coming on talking about a lot of this. Is there anything else that we missed that we should touch on in terms of like getting an knowing more for the individual investor about this space? Yeah, well, I think that pretty much covers it. I mean, we talked about the importance of the problem, how serious like the mental health crisis is. We talked about how psychedelics are, you know, potentially the solution to many of these mental health problems. And, you know, I think one thing that I would probably leave the listeners with is I personally care a lot about sort of, you know, impact and you know, sort of double bottom line investing. And one of the things that I care about a lot is like ending the war on drugs. And one of the ways that I see investing in the psychedelic space being as like a form of activism is this idea that like every dollar that you invest into the psychedelics industry is sort of like a vote against the war on drugs, you know? And so it's, that's kind of one of the things that makes me excited to be operating in this space is that there is like a real potential social impact in addition to just a financial impact. So I think it's an interesting area to, start following and potentially investing in. I have a podcast that you can find if you go to my website, it's empath.vc and you can click the podcast button. And I interview a lot of interesting, you know, entrepreneurs and CEOs in the space. And we talk about all of this stuff and, you know, much more depth. And yeah. And of course, if you know, you're interested in investing and are an accredited investor, the fund is still raising. So feel free to reach out and we can talk about that. And I think that that is pretty much covers it. Yeah, that's great. And I'll, I'll, I'll link all of those things in the show notes. You want to just say maybe your Twitter, empath.vc, is that the best place for people to yeah, find empath, you? Yeah, empath.vc is the website. And my Twitter is the real Brom, B-R-O-M. So the real Brom on Twitter. And yeah, those are the best places to follow me. Awesome. Brom, really appreciate you coming on. Super excited space and excited for all that you're, you're doing in it. Hey, thanks so much, Ben. Appreciate it. There you have it. Thank you for listening. I really appreciate your support. Show notes, transcript, links, and more can be found on our website at altassetallocation.com. If you'd be so kind, please share this with anyone you think might be interested or get some value from this conversation. If you have any questions or comments, please reach out. I'm always happy to hear them. Lastly, if you're on YouTube, please like the video or subscribe to the channel. If you're listening to the audio version of this, please subscribe to the podcast and or leave a review. This really helps more people find the podcast and I really appreciate it. Thanks again and hope you have a fantastic day. Happy investing.